0: Left for three in the win, yes, Dion has done it. I watched Marcus Morris handling the ball like he was a point guard. I watched them give the ball to Julius Randle. This brother was dribbling the ball up the damn court. First team all defense. First team all defense. I don't know about this, but
1: Rihanna just walked in front of me. <laughs> are you kidding me?
2: Welcome to the Roadwire NBA podcast. Day, February 22nd. We are presented, as always, this season by WinBet. Make sure you're checking out winbet.com for all of your sports wagering needs. Uh, Alex Barutha, what were you doing for All-Star weekend? What was your perch for Friday, Saturday nights, big events, uh, the All-Star game on Sunday? How much were you able to watch live? How much did you go back and catch up? Um, as I you know, stated last week, I was kind of on vacation, traveling a little bit over the weekend, so I wasn't Able to catch the the entirety of Friday and Saturday's events live, but I was able to get back in time for the All Star game itself on Sunday. Doesn't seem like I missed a whole lot. Uh, obviously, I went back and, and kind of did my my replays and, and everything on YouTube. But I actually rewatched the entire All Star Saturday night on NBA TV yesterday afternoon. Uh, yeah, it, <laughs> it, it feels like this one maybe set us back a couple years.
3: I uh, I pretty much watched the the usual main events. So I watched like the rising stars. Like I didn't watch a celebrity game or any celebrity of that. game. Yeah. Did not watch any of that. Although I saw, uh, there's some, some fair highlights. The, the high jumper had like a put back dunk. That was pretty cool. Um, but yeah, uh, yeah, that was pretty nice. It was pretty nice. Yeah. The, uh, for, so the rising stars was, was not excited. Like it was not that good. Um, was pretty disappointed. I didn't necessarily hate the format. Of like the 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 te- two teams playing and then like a round robin sort of a thing. Didn't hate that. Um I literally did not remember seeing Scoot Henderson on the court, which was weird because he's supposed to be like one of the most exciting G League prospects out there. And I just do not remember a single moment him him being out there, even though I watched the whole thing. Um and uh yeah, the Saturday night stuff. Skills competition was uh uh, well, I skills competition may have actually been more exciting than the dunk contest, so I don't want to, I don't want to poo poo that too much. But I enjoyed the actual All Star game itself. I thought it was, I thought that was a lot of fun. Yeah,
2: yeah. The, the only thing, like my only takeaway from the actual All Star game was how weird the rotations were. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, like you had you had Nikola Jokic on the bench down the stretch. Like I didn't, and nobody seemed to really care all that much. I mean, you had the guys who who were out there at the end, were going hard. But the minutes minutes breakdown is almost comical, uh, especially for Team LeBron. You have LeBron playing 36 minutes in the All-Star game. Steph Curry played 36 minutes. Uh, You know, Giannis, DeRozan, those guys were over 25. Uh, And and part of that was, you know, Chris Paul basically just went in for like a minute and a half. Uh, This was after, of course, he he suffered the broken thumb. He only played two minutes. Jimmy Butler seemingly does this every year, uh, where he either just becomes a DNP or just plays a handful of minutes. He played nine minutes in this one. But it was just kind of odd collections of players on the court in key moments, whereas in years past, since they switched to the Elam ending the last couple of years, it was kind of an implied, you know, situation where all the starters or at least the five biggest names on the team are usually the guys out there. And that was not the case really for either team down the stretch.
3: I know I was kind of expecting like LaMelo to get in there for like 25 minutes, uh, which I don't, I don't think he did. I barely remember him out there at all. Um, He was definitely out there late. he was out
2: there for most oh, of the He did quarter, play. He did play I 22. Believe. Minutes. I think yeah. 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 Well, the weirdest one too was Jared Allen cl- closing the basically the entire fourth quarter over Nikola Jokic. Maybe that was Jokic's request, maybe that was the Nuggets' request, I don't know. Uh that one felt like you know Jokic could have asked back into the game if he wanted to.
3: Uh yeah, probably. Uh Doncic was also playing with very little effort, which I understand, but I don't know, man. That, oh yeah. You know, I know the defense is Mostly non existent, although the fourth quarters of, with the new Elam ending have actually been good. But I mean, the, the Steph Curry performance was just like insane. Like, you know, I know that for yep. him, it's like a glorified practice setting, but still, it was insane. 50 point, like the 16 threes, the degree of difficulty on them were crazy. Hit like four in a row. It's just, uh, I mean, that, that itself was like worth it, like, pretty much made up for Friday and Saturday night kind of being duds.
2: Yeah, I, so on the dunk contest, I, I don't have a whole lot to say about three-point shootout or skills. I mean, skills, I think, was like marginally better. Uh, still not ideal. I don't, I don't think there's really a great way to go about that. Uh, but it seemed like it was a little more competitive and a little bit more of a a sell for the audience and especially the TV audience. I mean, the dunk contest, man, I, I I expected it to be worse. Honestly, I like I said, I had to go back and watch the highlights initially, and then I, I was able to watch the full telecast. But, you know, I was on Twitter on Saturday night, and it – Judging from that, it sounded like nobody completed a dunk. Everybody missed, <laughs> like, 20 in a row, and then they just, like, called the event there, and, and nobody won. Um, it actually took me a while to find who actually won the dunk contest. But, you know, going back and watching it, I I don't know where we're at with this because I actually thought the dunks were pretty good. Uh, obviously, you, you can't take, like, 12 chances or 12 opportunities to do it like Jalen Green, and, and you know, that was the case really for all these guys at some point in the contest. So, it was really sloppy in that regard. It reminded me of that that fabled 2005 dunk contest with Chris Birdman Anderson, you know, needing like, like 75 tries to get a dunk down. Um, so that's a big part of it is like, you can't, you really can't miss a dunk more than twice, maybe three times, depending on the level of difficulty, because even after you complete it, like the the hype has worn off. You know, everybody's, yeah. everybody, every player, everybody on the sideline has their camera phone out ready to record it. And, you know, on the fifth try, you're, you're going into your, your photos and deleting them. The video and taking a new one, deleting the video, taking a new one, like the hype is worn off at that point. So that's, that's a big part of it is you have to get the dunk down within a few tries. But again, the dunks that were eventually made by all four guys, I actually thought were really good. And I think we have just reached a point where we're pretty much out of dunks at this point. And that's, that's a pretty big problem for uh, something called the dunk contest, because um, you know, right or wrong judges and, and fans are going to hold it against guys. If they repeat dunks that we've seen. And really the only way to do it is you have to like throw a player's Jersey on and make it really obvious that like, Hey, I'm I'm doing this as a tribute to Vince Carter or Jason Richardson. You know, like we saw from Juan Toscano Anderson. I love the dunk contest as much as anybody. I I am very worried about the future of the dunk contest. This, this kind of felt like a somewhat of a pivotal moment where pretty much everybody collectively said this was terrible. And it's getting to the point now where you're seeing a lot of people say, "I, I think the three point contest should end up being the featured event. That I'm not quite sure if I agree with, but based on the caliber of the dunk contest that we saw, it's kind of hard to argue against it.
3: Yeah. I mean, you're right about the, uh, the missed dunks. They really just suck the air out out of the building. Cause like most of the fun of the dunk contest is just like, you have no idea what's about to happen. And then it's crazy. Right. But the second that you brick a dunk, everyone knows that you're probably going to try the same dunk again. And so it just doesn't carry that much weight anymore. Also, anytime, I, I think we have to just ban footwear-related props. I mean, the second that I saw Cole Anthony lacing up a pair of Tims, I was like, oh, man, like, this is bad. Like, yeah. it, um, not that it was, like, a bad dunk or it wasn't hard, but it's just, like, no one, like, Gerald Green did his dunk in bare feet or socks or something. It's just, like, nobody Sox.
4: nobody thinks that's
3: that cool. Yeah, nobody thinks it's that cool. Um, but, yeah, I, I mean... Like you mentioned, the dunks were fine. Um, I thought Obi Toppins, well, did he go between the legs and then off the backboard? Like he touched the backboard and then dunked it? I thought that was pretty yeah, sick. Yeah, he
2: he did kind of a, one of his dunks was a straight on off the backboard between the legs, which it drew no reaction from the crowd. You know, like 10 <laughs> years ago, that would have been an instant 50 iconic dunk. Um, which again speaks to, I think like the bar has been raised on certain occasions. You know, now it's like every five years we get a good dunk contest, but for a while, like we were turning out really good dunks and really good contests, you know, year after year. And all those dunks have kind of been, been used up. And we're to the point now where we're no longer impressed by a six ten guy throwing the ball off the backboard and going between the legs. Like that, that's like a solid 45 now. And you're, you're really not going to get a ton of reaction. He also, yeah, the, the dunk that I think he was trying to do earlier and then ended up doing uh, to win the contest. And at that point, uh Toscano Anderson had missed his dunk like 70 times and all Toppen needed to do was just put down any dunk to win so he tried it again and yeah it looked like he was he was kind of going from the left side between the legs and
3: then wanted to basically bank in a dunk which I I don't know that we've ever seen before uh yeah which I I thought was pretty cool I think he tried it earlier in the contest I think and it didn't work out very well yeah Uh, also I have to I have to shout out Juan Toscano, uh, Toscano Anderson's confidence in himself to be able to try a windmill dunk into sticking his elbow into the rim. Uh yeah. did not even get close to being high enough on that. Uh and like he literally banged like his high wrist on the rim. It's like man, like come on. Um yeah, I I just think when there's so many missed dunks so early, it just the vibe, the vibe completely changes, which is why, like the, for example, like the uh, contest everyone goes back to, Aaron Gorgon versus Zach Levine. It's like they weren't missing dunks, and that just keeps ramping up the energy higher and higher and higher. Um, you know, to the point where like the, the crowd is going insane. Um, yeah, it just it, there were good dunks. I just couldn't. It was fine. I, you know, I'm I'm not gonna go. I, plus. Plus the the point you're making about like everyone on Twitter being like, "Oh, this is the worst dunk contest we've ever seen." People love to hate on the dunk contest. Like, sure do. Someone will miss one dunk and they'll be like, "Why do we even do this anymore, man? Like, what's even the point?" Like five <laughs> minutes into the contest, it's like these may as well be scheduled tweets at like uh, nine thirty yep. p.m. every every uh, year. So
2: right. Yeah. I, again, I think we're we're pretty much out of dunks. You know, it's not it's not the home run derby where, you know, it's the same it's, it's the same event over and over, and you're just counting up to a certain number. You know, you're, you're, everybody's kind of doing the same thing. I mean, I guess in that way, that's more similar to the three point shootout, where you know, it's just kind of a every, it's standard across the board, and it's just who's the best at it. I don't know. I mean, maybe maybe there's a way to look at it where instead of guys coming up with their own dunks or you know at this point now struggling to do so you know maybe there's a component where the judges or you know it would have to be someone like Vince Carter you know is saying all right here's the dunk that you have to do and they, they show a video of somebody doing it or you know kind of a step-by-step breakdown and then you know each guy has to attempt it and whoever does it best gets the highest score something like that I it's definitely in need of a shakeup at this point with that with that said you know you mentioned the Gordon Levine dunk contest maybe that's going to go down as the last great dunk contest it kind of feels like that at this point but it's not like that was 15 years ago. That was, a, that was what, three years ago? Uh, we're, we're not that far removed from what I would say is, like, hands down the greatest dunk contest of all time. And I, I know there are a lot of people that cling to the 2000 dunk contest in Oakland with Vince Carter, but you go back and watch, like, the, the dunk that Vince Carter, I believe, won it on, which was the, uh, you know, just kind of the between the legs where, where McGrady drops the ball and he just goes up and puts it between his legs. What does that get you now? Is that, like, a 39? <laughs>
3: Yeah, probably. I mean, you have to put all the when you go back, you have to put all this stuff into context because, right? You know, guys are doing like Statue of Liberty dunks in the first dunk contest, and people are like, the crowd is like losing their minds and like spilling their beer <laughs> all over each other. Um, right? Yeah, I, I, you know, I've said this before. I think the dunk contest is like you are hoping for a twenty-five percent hit rate. So you you hope you get like two to three good contests every decade. I think if you. If you set that mm-hmm. standard in your in I, your I, own head. We,
2: we need to find a way. Maybe, yeah. I, I, maybe Adam Silver needs to address the crowd before the dunk contest <laughs> just to temper everybody's expectations.
3: Yeah. And I think, you know, part of it too is like everyone sees on YouTube or on Instagram these the professional dunkers doing the craziest stuff you've ever seen in your life. Uh, but like how yeah. many NBA players can do that? You know, so it's like People are also now going up. These dunkers are also now going up against the people literally who's, they dunk for a living. And everyone got, you know, everyone on social media, like in 2000, you weren't going to like go on YouTube and watch a bunch of guys do between the leg dunks like that. Like it just didn't exist. And now you see, you're seeing guys do all sorts of stuff on, on YouTube. That's insane. Um, And I think the crowd has like very different expectations than they used to.
2: No, that's true. That's hundred percent true. And and again, I, I think I think we went through a similar lull in the early part of the last decade. And the Levine Gordon, you know, kind of mini rivalry for a couple of years re you know, reinvigorated the dunk contest, and it felt like it was back. Uh, but you know, if those guys aren't participating. It, it it can fall flat on its face pretty quickly. It, it does feel like that's what happened. And you know, I, I think another part of the issue is the fact that someone like Juan Toscano-Anderson and Obi-Tan. Up in guys who are you know combining to play like 14 minutes a night at this point are two of the headliners in this contest. Like you need more star power, but you know based on what just happened, like if you're a star, why would you sign up for this? You know, there's very little upside for you here.
3: Yeah, yeah, it's a tough call. I mean, Giannis did it, and he was terrible, he was uh, but that was like that was like kind of before he was a star. Uh, I mean, it definitely was before he was like a star. Yeah, well, he, that like, was, he was green, definitely good. green and red
2: jersey, Giannis.
3: Yeah, I mean, that was like yeah, second or third year Giannis. Um, he was very bad, but I think that's kind of the comes with the territory being like a seven foot one leg jumper. It's like what do you, mm-hmm. what can you realistically do besides like the windmill? Uh, so, yeah, I mean, obviously everyone's like, oh Morant, please do it, and obviously I think he'd be sick, but I don't know. Part part of me thinks people would be just so happy to see someone like John Morant do it, that even if he was like, okay, they'd, st- they'd be like, cool. Awesome. Right? No, I, I, get,
2: I get for sure. For sure. And that's the point on stars do, doing it is I, I don't think we have, I, I think expectations would be weirdly lowered for some reason, if stars did it because it's, because it's LeBron James or because it's John Morant, it's like, Oh, everything they do is instantly cooler. So even if they're not matching a uh, Zach Levine type of dunk, because it's a superstar player, it instantly becomes cooler. And I, I think we we still see that with the way that people talk about Jordan winning the dunk contest, Kobe doing the dunk contest. Like, I, I'm going to say it. Those guys, were those were not all-time dunks that either of those guys did in the dunk contest, but they live on forever because of how famous the players who did them actually are. One thing we have not mentioned here, the guy who was coming into the NBA supposed to save the dunk contest was Zion Williamson. So <laughs> I, I think we do, there is kind of this like sleeping dunk contest giant of a someday getting a John Morant versus Zion Williamson showdown in the dunk contest, because I don't don't care how many bad ones we have leading up to that. That would be must watch TV. That would be incredible.
3: I would. Yeah. I think um, I, I can't really imagine a, it's hard for me to imagine a more like hyped up dunk contest than that. Even because LeBron at this point, you know, how much does he have left in the tank for a, a dunk contest? And he never really really struck me as someone who has like a deep bag of like crazy dunks. Like I think he just jumps pretty no. high. He's mostly a one foot jumper anyway, which is tough. Um, and yeah, I I don't know what would be more anticipated than that. Obviously, other than like a Gordon Levine rematch. Like if you had Gordon Levine, Morant, and Zion, I think it would like that could change the world.
2: Yeah. Again, to go back to Adam Silver, maybe he needs to take like, executive action here and. Ah, uh, declare martial law. Like I'm choosing who's in the dunk contest. If I say you have to do it, you have to do it. <laughs> Zion would make his season debut in the dunk contest. Yeah,
3: <laughs> it'd be like Chris Paul playing in the All Star game with a broken thumb. You know, Zion just uh, makes the trip from Portland uh, to Cleveland just to do the dunk contest, and then just uh, gets shipped back home.
2: Does it, he does it in just a generic NBA jersey, not a Pelicans jersey? <laughs> yeah, in
3: his uh, yeah, just in like normal sweats.
2: Winbet is now the exclusive sponsor for Rotowire's fantasy podcast. Winbet brings you all the latest action with a user-friendly interface, moneyline bets, boosted parlays, over/unders, round robins, live betting, and so much more. All that is at your fingertips with the Winbet app. Want a break from sports betting? Head into Winbet's digital casino and take a spin on roulette, double down in blackjack, slam the slots, or even try your hand at backrat. Winbet is currently available in 9 states. Those 9 states are Arizona, Colorado, Indiana, Louisiana, Michigan, New Jersey, New York, Tennessee, and Virginia, and it's rapidly expanding. At Winbet, the possibilities are limitless. Register for Winbet today, make a qualifying deposit, and wager to receive $200 in free bets. Promotion may vary by state. Download Winbet now. That's Winbet, W-Y-N-N-B-E-T. Winbet, the exclusive partner for Rotowire's Fantasy Podcasts. Thrive Fantasy is back for another season of fantasy basketball, and they're running guaranteed contests every single day this NBA season. With Thrive Fantasy, you can eliminate the countless hours of research and focus only on the top-tier players who have the biggest impact on the game. Sign up today, and you'll get a free six-month Rotowire subscription. Here's how you claim that free Rotowire subscription. Step one: visit rotowire.com/thrive. That's T-H-R-I-V-E. Thrive. Step two, deposit a minimum of $10 and you'll receive a 100% deposit bonus up to $100. Step three, play in your first paid contest and you will then receive that free six-month Rotowire subscription. Infinite value with that subscription. You'll get full access to everything on rotowire.com. All sports, all of our optimizers, everything you need to become the best fantasy player and sports better that you can be. Check out thrivefantasy.com to learn more. Thrive Fantasy, an official partner of roto All right, let's check in on the futures market, something we have been monitoring very closely throughout the NBA season. And we have some more updates uh, to a lot of the odds looking at awards, looking at team futures, conference winners, things of that nature. Uh, If you go to rotowire.com and hit the sports betting tab under basketball, uh, you, you can see DraftKings, FanDuel, BetMGM, PointsBet, all those odds, Uh, essentially in a very nice looking spreadsheet put together by our tech team. uh, It makes it really easy to compare all the odds. So we do have a decent amount of variance, especially when you get beyond the top two or three teams. Um, You you pointed out earlier that I think it's points bet has the Celtics at 16 to one, whereas you'll find the Celtics at 27 to one on FanDuel. Um, So there are some teams kind of in that middle mix that some books are higher on some books are lower on, but the one thing I want to highlight right away is we're, we're finally starting to see the collectively the books back off of the nets a little bit. And, and you're still going to see the nets installed as, you know, kind of a co-favorite alongside Phoenix and golden state. But as recently as last week, the nets were still the favorite at a lot of books, you know, after the trade deadline, after sending James Harden to Philly. And I was really never a big believer in that. I think this team, even if everybody is healthy, has some pretty major question marks to answer. Uh, obviously, the, the Kyrie situation being number one, uh, integrating a guy who hasn't played in 250 days being number two. And there kind of seemed to be this belief that, oh, once Kevin Durant is back, that's going to fix everything. He's so good, he'll just carry whoever to a title. I don't necessarily know that, that that's the case right now, especially for a guy you know coming off of a knee injury that's going to end up costing him probably six to eight weeks.
3: Right. Yeah, I do. I do kind of wonder the dynamic of like why you know, the books are holding on to the Nets as the favorite for so long. I mean, maybe they were still getting money on it and they felt like we don't want to give up. You know, we, want to, we don't want to make longer odds if we're still getting people betting uh, like this. But yeah, it's I, I, I think they're maybe the most confusing team to try to factor in to, to try a handicap because like you mentioned, the variables are crazy, you know, like. Durant coming back from a knee injury is tough, but of course we saw what he almost could single handedly do last season against the Bucs. Uh I'm still one of the most terrifying players in the NBA just to face in a in a series. And I do think like we don't even know about Kyrie. Can he play uh will he be able to play home games at that point? I still am relatively high in the nets, but it's hard for me to say like I I don't think like I don't think plus four fifty or plus six hundred, I don't think that's enough for me to like jump on and be like, yeah, I will definitely take the nets at this number uh, to win the title. Even though I think, I, I think part of this too, is that I, I think the East is relatively open. I think every team in the East has a point, not every team, but like most of the the pe- teams, people would consider title contenders. They've been playing well, have points where you can look at that. You can be like, this looks like the best team in the East. If you look at these numbers and then if you look at this factor, right, yeah. make the case for the magic. Right. Exactly. Yes. Um, you know, they, and then they have a, a counterpoint that's like, well uh, you know, this isn't going so well for them. So in the, in the sense that the East is very wide open, I can understand why someone would look at plus 600 for the nets and go. Yeah. I mean, why not? Yeah. I
2: mean, I, if you're getting plus 600, I'm totally fine with that. I I didn't really agree where after the trade deadline, I feel like despite getting, you know, they got deeper adding Andre Drummond, adding Curry, adding Simmons. That was big, you know, doing basically a a three for one. I know they sent out Paul Millsap, but that doesn't really matter. Um, They needed that depth. So I I do think there's a world in which this this goes well and Simmons looks good and maybe they do end up better for it, but they still lost the best player in the deal. And I, I think they were being handled like, they're the, you know, 2018 Warriors where it was just like, you know, they're impenetrable. If everybody's even remotely healthy, they're a lot to get to the finals. And I, I just don't think that's the case. I mean, I, it, you know, obviously in, in sending out Harden, you maybe eliminate some of that inherent risk that his body breaks down or he underperforms in the playoffs. But I, I think you're bringing in an even more risky player in Ben Simmons. So I, I, I don't know. I, it felt like, all, like everybody was really down on Ben Simmons when he was just sitting on the sidelines for the 76ers. And then the moment that he, you know, put on a Brooklyn Nets jersey, everybody just decided, oh, he's back. This is going to be great. Like, I I just think there's way too many questions that that Ben Simmons has to answer before we all of a sudden declare this like a new big three for Brooklyn.
3: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they, you know, they only have what most teams only have like 25 games left. And how many games, how many games are we going to get Ben Simmons, Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant before the playoffs? Like eight? Probably less than five five to eight. I mean,
2: Kyrie's Kyrie's only
3: eligible for like eight more
2: games the rest of the year. And, uh, you know, Ramona Shelburne, I think either yesterday or earlier this morning said that, you know, Simmons is still potentially weeks away from debuting. You know I mean? If he comes back even mid March, you know, you're looking at like four weeks left in the season.
3: Yeah. I, I mean, it is, it is tough. I think, I mean, I think this trade, this Nets trade was for them, for the Nets. It's just, as much about hey we're hedging for our future uh maybe even more so than this season because like had they just kept Harden Harden maybe he's unhappy he's going to play um and he's still going to be really good uh whether or not the fit is perfect is like one thing but i think trading for Ben Simmons is not necessarily like that's not the best move for this season i'm not i, at least, I don't think that's a given so like, if I'm trying oh, to hey. choose between what I rather bet on the Nets or the Sixers to win the title this season, I think I would go with the 76ers. Uh, and the odds aren't even that different. Like, they're almost even if you're, if you're looking like no. cross-book.
0: We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed.
4: you won't find another outlet that covers the game as comprehensively and with such insight as JJ does it on the old man. And the three make this your companion podcast during the playoffs, listen to the old man and the three ad free on Wondery plus or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance.
2: You're totally right, and I, I did want to bring up the other side of this, which is the Sixers. And you know, right now, depending on where you look, if you're if you're talking top of the East, the Nets are are usually slight favorites over Milwaukee and Philly. But Milwaukee and Philly are pretty much even, depending on which book you're looking at. DraftKings, for example, they're both seven to one. FanDuel, you got the Bucks at plus six fifty, the Sixers at plus seven fifty. Very close, no matter where you look. To me, you know, Milwaukee, even though they they're yet to go on that like. 15 game run where, you know, they, they, win, you know, they go 14 and one and they they have the best offense in the league and Giannis looks great. Like, I don't know if we're going to see that this year, like you mentioned, we're running out of time for a lot of these teams to put together a run like that. So I, I don't know that we're ever going to have this super inspiring. Oh my God, here come the bucks, you know, type of narrative develop. But I still, I still think there's such a safe pick. Um, if everybody's healthy and that, that, you know, goes down to getting Brooke Lopez back, getting Pat Connaughton back. Those are pretty big ifs. Um, you know, with only seven weeks left in the regular season. But you know, to me, I like how would you compare the upside? Like if the Sixers play their best game and the Bucks play their best game, which of those teams do you like better? Because I, I do feel like there's still some more risk on the Philly side, even if you want to make the argument that they could be the better team at their peak. Uh
3: I think I mean, I I don't know, man. I, I think the 76ers do have a chance to be better than the Bucs if everyone plays at their absolute peak because, I mean, they have two MVP caliber players and the Bucks have one, if we're going to keep it that simple. I know, and neither team has great depth, but, um, you know, in that case, then you almost have to like, I mean, obviously Milwaukee has better, has more defensive upside, right? It'd be like Philly's offensive upsides insane, obviously, have, and being on the back line and Thibault is interesting, but Harden's a huge... Uh, like you know, Harden's a huge question mark, I guess to say the least on that end of the court, and who knows about Tyrus Maxey in a high leverage playoff situation, and um, you know, you you have you know Drew Holiday checking Harden, and um, I I think in that specific matchup, my concern as a Bucks fan is um, who is guarding Joel Embiid because uh, Burke Lopez. First of all, Brooke Lopez could not guard Joel Embiid. Let's put it that way. Even if he comes back, he can't guard him. Ibaka I, is probably too broken down to guard him at this point. I think someone with a back issue is the last person you'd want going up against Joel Embiid. It's like you know, Bobby Ortiz isn't uh, right for that either. And uh, you, I don't know if you want Yangus banging with him. So, like, that, that part of the matchup is, I think, problematic for Milwaukee. And I think you have to really be worried mm-hmm. about matching up against Philly.
2: It sounds to me like there's only one choice and it's Sandro Mamoukalashvili. That's the, that's the only guy on the depth chart who you did not name. Uh, But no, you're right. You're right. I I think this would become a classic let Embiid get his series, limit James Harden, limit Tobias Harris, you know, limit Tyrese Maxey depending on how effective he is. And, you know, if Embiid averages 45 and 14 for the series, but you're able to hold Harden to like 40% shooting and he's turning the ball over and, you know, Drew Holiday hasn't been jail for a whole series. Like I, I think you're kind of okay with that because I, you know, it, it's the same way that some teams have treated Giannis over these last couple of years where, you know, bringing in holiday that, that, that was kind of that third piece that Milwaukee really needed. But before they had him, we saw a lot of teams just say, look, we're we're going to work are content to let Giannis get his 40 and 15. We're going to make Chris Middleton and Eric Bledsoe and Dante DiVincenzo beat us. And, you know, historically that's a pretty good route to take. So but I, I, you know philly to me I, I think it's right there with milwaukee i think they're actually really really similar teams and you noted that you know philly doesn't have a ton of depth i, I go back and forth on that i mean i, I think there are certain guys who you know, like depending on how danny green is playing any given week he could be a very positive depth piece or a terrible depth piece that you don't want on the court at all you know same kind of goes for guys like cork maz uh, even matisse theibel being a specialist but i think these teams while the personnel is different they are kind of mirror images of each other where, you know, yeah, you have the two MVP caliber players in Philly, but I think the Bucks' top three is maybe slightly better, depending on how you view Tobias Harris. It, it, it would be a really fascinating matchup. I would love to see that as our Eastern Conference Finals matchup.
3: I think, I think it'd be a deserving Eastern Conference Finals matchup for sure. And I guess, I mean, if you're Milwaukee, maybe you try to hide Giannis on bull and then have him play like help side defense against Embiid. Right. But um you know and like you just you can see that you're going to give up a lot of open looks to like Diebool and Danny Green and like those other wings and cork moss and whatever um but yeah i mean if you're if you're kind of mapping out what would be the most like intense eastern conference finals matchup just a complete bloodbath i do think philly milwaukee is probably it i think there's a case for like miami and someone else, whether that be Milwaukee or, um, you know, Milwaukee or Philly, you know, because I think Miami is kind of that other team in the in the Eastern Conference that I have like a good amount of confidence in like that. You know, they haven't gotten a lot of, I guess, recognition this season, Miami, but they've been missing a ton of guys. Butler hasn't played that much. i uh, missed missed a huge stretch. And they are they're playing like Yurtsevin, like 30 minutes a game. And they yep. and they still, um, they're still putting up like very good numbers. Like they're, I think they're seventh and point differential. Um, you know, they're kind of a team that like, actually maybe better than that. Like um, I was looking at the wrong stats. Yeah, Miami has the fifth best defense and the seventh best offense. And they have a ton of missed time. So it's like, they're kind of the mm-hmm. team that I think is interesting in this whole equation. And you kind of get the feeling
2: that they know all this too, right? And they, I, I think they probably they probably laugh at the fact that everybody's just discussing, you know, Philly, Miami, Milwaukee, or Philly, Brooklyn, Milwaukee, and, and they're lurking there as the number one team in the Eastern Conference right now. You know, not only have they played really well with all the injuries, they are literally the best team in the conference at the All-Star break. So you're 100% right there. I, I don't like this Brooklyn team is just so frustrating to me that like, even though I know they're going to be in the mix, I mean, they are the eight seed right now. That is worth noting. Um, you know, there, are three games above 500 and we don't know how many more games Kevin Durant is going to miss. I, I just don't find this team all that compelling. I mean, once Simmons is back on the court, that changes things. Um, but if we go into the playoffs with Kyrie Irving only being able to play in half the games, that's not that entertaining to me. Like, I, I think I would love to see, you know, Milwaukee Philly on one side, um, or, you know, some, basically some setup where we eventually get that series. And I'd love to see Miami play Chicago at some point. And I think yeah. Miami wins that series. There's still something about the Chicago team that I I'm a little bit hesitant about buying in on, but I, I think that would be a really, really fun series.
3: Yeah. I mean, I, I love watching Chicago play. Obviously it's been a long time since they've been healthy. Their main problem is defense. You know, it kind of be like an offense first defense series, right? Cause Chicago is so potent offensively. Um, Although you know, like they're 19th in defense right now, but they have been missing two of their core defenders, maybe their two best defenders, and Lonzo Ball and, and Alex Caruso, and and um, Pat Williams, and Pat Williams. Yeah, I mean, you'd probably throw Pat Williams on Jimmy Butler, and you know, have like uh, Caruso chase around Duncan Robinson, and have Lonzo stick on Kyle Lowry, and um, it's. I mean, that would that would be a lot of fun for sure.
2: Yeah, I, I like the Tristan Thompson addition – for Chicago as well. I mean, that was a team that that was just in the market for somebody who has a body of an NBA center. And Tristan Thompson has that. I mean, he's only what? I think he's only 30, maybe 31. Um, Like it feels like when you end up in Sacramento, it feels like that adds like five years to your career. So it feels like he's more washed up than he actually is. But yeah, he is, I guess he'll he'll turn 31 next month. So still should, in theory, have plenty left in the tank, uh, especially if he's, you know, giving them what, 14 minutes a night uh, off the bench, and so I, I think that was kind of a sneaky nice move by Chicago. What a world we're living in now! Where I am infinitely more fascinated by the Eastern Conference playoffs than I am the West. You know, like the, the top three teams in the West are fun, but like how depressing would a four-five Utah-Dallas matchup be right now? Where d- Dallas is in fifth place, they have one of the five-six best players in the league, and it felt like they were sellers at the deadline. You know, nobody likes watching Utah like that. That team—it just feels like is heading toward some sort of breakup at some point you know denver's without two of its three best players minnesota kind of fun you know they're the seven right now um you know not a team that a lot of people are taking seriously and then you have the the injured clippers and the disastrous lakers as the nine seed whereas in the east like i mean you could go all the way down to atlanta at 10 you got charlotte at nine i mentioned brooklyn at eight i mean we haven't even talked about boston or toronto uh, who are both playing really well heading into the break like it feels like there are only three or four compelling teams in the West and there's like 10 or 11 in the East.
3: Yeah. I mean, the West definitely feels like it's going to end up being Phoenix against Golden State. Obviously Memphis is, is really intriguing there. I would, I would actually, you know, four or five against uh, Utah against Dallas would be interesting to me because imagine this, like, uh, I mean, imagine this version of the Mavericks beats Utah in the first round. And what that would oh, just boy. do to the jazz. I know like what that would just do to the jazz uh, chemistry and, and i mean, like, that would be um, disastrous for them. But yeah, I mean, the, the Clippers are scrappy. I mean, if they, if they get back Kawhi Leonard and Paul George, obviously they become very interesting. Um, and same with Denver, like Denver is going to get Jamal Murray back. It sounds like in March, uh, whether or not he'd be able to like really ramp it, to, uh, ramp up to hundred percent is something, you know, worth monitoring. Um, and they like technically decided that Michael Porter Jr. is not out for the season, even though I don't believe that. Um, but they're, I mean, they're interesting too. It's just that, yeah, the East, the East all season is just, it's just a lot of, it's just a ton of competitive teams in the East who are just like not pushovers.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. We, I have to do some more digging on the MPJ thing because I know they, they got a disabled player exception which you only get if you declare a guy out for the year. So maybe they maybe they didn't end up using that, and that gives them the ability to potentially bring him back. I'm not really sure. But if I were them, I would not be counting on getting MPJ back. And I, I think, I mean, Jamal Murray is going to be a huge boost. Ultimately, I don't know if that's quite enough for me to, to think that this is a team that could, could seriously challenge Phoenix or Golden State. But, I, I mean, it's definitely possible. I think the Clippers are the team that, and I've been saying this all year, and, and I'm, I'm really surprised that we're not seeing more books kind of hedge this especially since we got some at least semi-positive news on Paul George over these last few days where it sounds like he could be back within the next few weeks still very much TBD on Kawhi but I mean you have the Clippers at 100 to 1 on FanDuel. Yeah. they're 60 to 1 on DraftKings they're 80 to 1 on points bet they're 100 to 1 at at MGM. I mean 100 to 1 for for a team that, like even if there's a 10 chance that both those guys come back And still at that point, yes, it becomes, it's still, you can still do the math and it's like, yeah, it's very unlikely that they make the finals, win the finals. I get, I get all that, but a hundred to one for a team that could have Kawhi Leonard and Paul George back, uh, especially, you know, potentially looking at a, a first round matchup against the Suns team that who knows, like maybe Chris Paul is still limited. Maybe Chris Paul misses a couple games in the first round, depending on how this hand rehab goes. Um, that, that was kind of the next thing I wanted to ask you about is the Suns. They're six and a half games up. On Golden State, which honestly, I did not realize until looking at the standings the other day, I, I didn't realize they had opened up that much of a gap over these last couple of weeks. But obviously, they just continue to win games. They're not going to keep winning at this pace. They're winning 83% of their games so far. Without Chris Paul, you know, they're, they're not just going to keep running over teams every single night. But with only 24 games left, they should still get the one seed, you know, unless we see something crazy from Golden State. But but again, I mean, that that you could be looking at a matchup against the Clippers or the Lakers, in round one. And no matter the circumstances, Phoenix, assuming Chris Paul is back, is still going to be favored in that series. But I, I, this might be a year where you'd almost rather be the two and, and potentially play a team like Denver or Minnesota.
3: Yeah. I mean, the Suns without Chris Paul on the court are like plus four net rating, which is good. But it's like only slightly above average, obviously. So like, I think it won't be easy for that. I think they're going to miss him a lot. Um yeah, I I just I wouldn't want to play Phoenix, man. They're a machine. You know, Phoenix has turned into a machine the same way Milwaukee turned into a machine a few years ago, where it's just like they're just cutting through teams in the regular season. Yep. Um they everyone's everyone is bought in, everyone knows their role, everyone plays hard, they're good defensively. You know, even if you if Chris Paul is coming back and is like rusty, I just wouldn't I wouldn't even want to deal with that, you know. Uh, Chris Paul was hurt. Chris Paul was hurt last year in the first round. Wasn't he that he like messed his That's shoulder true.
2: up? He, yeah, he allegedly couldn't raise his shoulder like above his head, I think, or couldn't really get it above like 180 degrees.
3: Yeah. I remember him like not shooting and they still. Mm. Yeah. Were... Yeah. I mean,
2: and that was right until Anthony Davis went down, I, they were losing that series to the Lakers.
3: Yeah. I'm, I'm looking at the series right now. The series against the Lakers, Chris Paul was averaging 9.2 points per game on 39% shooting. And, you know, they were still able to to pull that off. And then next round, he was obviously way better. Um, yeah, I, it's hard. It's like, just by the numbers, I, Phoenix has to be the favorite. And they are uh, at the books too, at this point, I think. Most of them, if not all of them.
2: Yeah, I, I again. I'm not saying they're going to lose in round one. I'm just saying it's it's probably a more difficult matchup than it should be, or than it has been yes. in years past, where there's not there's probably not going to be this sacrificial lamb team. I don't know. I mean, unless Portland or Minnesota ends up there, <laughs> right. um, And even Minnesota, I, I think, is Minnesota is considerably friskier than like you know the 2018 Orlando Magic or the 2015 Detroit Pistons. Like those those teams were, you knew it. You knew exactly what you were walking into, uh, even though I think that that orlando team did steal one from toronto i believe and then got up the, um i did tell james last week uh, i'm officially out on the lakers uh the anthony davis injury before the break uh sealed that one for me even though they did win that game against utah Um, uh, you know the, the combination of that and not doing anything like not even getting like goran dragic on a buyout um that that sealed their fate for me so if, if it is suns lakers in round one i think that suns in four or five uh, that that team does not scare me, but the Clippers are the, or maybe the Timberwolves, but especially the Clippers um, with one of Kawhi and Paul George back. That scares me a little bit if I Phoenix, but nonetheless, I mean, we haven't, like you alluded to, we haven't seen a ton of movement in terms of the odds based on this Chris Paul injury. And in some ways, maybe a blessing in disguise. I mean, you're, you're grasping at straws a little bit here, but like you said, this team probably could use some, you know, some experience playing without Chris Paul. And, and obviously if Chris Paul goes down in the playoffs, they're done. But, you know, this is going to be a good experience for the 12 to 14 minutes a game in the playoffs where Chris Paul's not on the court. And like you said, they've been a, they've just been an okay team when he's not out there. And it is going to force them now, I think, to kind of find some other ways to operate when he's not there. And then the other thing is, this just feels like an injury that Chris Paul has suffered a hundred times. And it's always like right in the middle of the playoffs. So, you know, maybe there's a way to look at this where he's gotten it out of the way in February and March instead of having it happen in May and June.
3: Right. Um, yeah, I mean, they... They're it will help them figure out stuff on offense because they're just not a good offensive team with him off the court. They're fine on defense, but they haven't gotten they haven't gotten what they were getting last year out of Cameron Payne, for example. Um, and they like even brought in Aaron Holiday because I don't think they were satisfied with Payne, Payton, mm. and who else. I mean, I guess you're going to have Devin Booker play some nominal point guard and Landry Shammit's yeah. going to be out there a little bit more. But like that's that. The the guys behind Chris Paul, the guys that be getting more minutes because Chris Paul is out is just like not, not the cast of characters that that you want out there. Which is fine because like in a in a playoff setting, like if you if Chris Paul's gone, you know, it's gonna be really tough for you anyway. It's not like it's kind of like the argument of, well, do we even really need that great of a backup for like Joel Embiid? Because if Joel Embiid's yeah. injured, <laughs> it's not available for 40 minutes, then we're kind of screwed.
2: Yeah, I mean it's it's a backup quarterback in the NFL. Where, right. yeah, in the regular season, maybe you want somebody who can who can at least give you 500 football. But if if I don't know if Aaron Rodgers or Patrick Mahomes gets hurt in the wild card round, uh, chances are your backup is not leading you to the Super Bowl. I, I guess uh, counterpoint, Nick Foles. But um, <laughs> I, I think you know what I mean. Yeah. Let's touch real quickly on. Uh, I, I put up an article on our site and on Yahoo earlier today, um, looking at ten of the biggest positive surprises in fantasy basketball this season. And Mike Barner is going to do a companion piece that will go live on Wednesday, looking at some of the disappointments uh, based on, you know, production versus ADP. And I actually think it's, it's kind of more fun to do this one. Like both articles are are fun to write and it's a lot of fun research to do, but like players who disappoint to me, like it's almost always in fantasy it's because of injury. Like there are very few guys uh, although there are a few this year, but normally there are very few guys who, Come into a season, and you're like, All right, this guy, if he stays healthy, he's a top 15 guy, and he stays healthy and it's just like not good anymore, like that. In, unless the player is you know 36 years old, that just doesn't really happen that much in basketball. And the guy that, that I was thinking of is Brad beal um, who you know, before right. his season ending injury had kind of taken a weird step back like that. But being able to look at the positives, like it's 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 great, like everything you're writing is like, You know, this guy barely missed any time, he took all these steps forward. Um, but it's kind of fun to, to essentially eliminate the negative aspects, um, that that we're often writing about when it comes to fantasy. Uh, so the guys I ended up selecting are Desmond Bain, Josh Giddy, Tyrese Maxey, Kevin Love, Scotty Barnes, DeJounte Murray, DeMar DeRozan, Miles Bridges, Gary Trent, and Franz Wagner. There are a ton of other guys that I could have included. Um, and I didn't go strictly like current rank versus ADP, uh, but you know, someone like Wagner yeah, yeah, I, I, I went back and forth on including him. Like he's, for example, he's 42nd right now in total value, but he has not missed a single game. If you, if you talk it per game, he sinks all the way to like 98th. Um, so then at that point, it's not quite that impressive, but you know, Wagner, Giddy, even Scotty Barnes to a slightly lesser degree. I, I don't know about you. I was way out on all those guys in terms of immediate fantasy value. I, I thought Barnes and Giddy were, were interesting long-term. Didn't really know what to think about Wagner, but I mean, the fact that, you know, as I kind of went through this, I didn't even include Kate Cunningham or, or Evan Mobley, um, but we have just a, ridiculously stacked rookie class, not only in real life, but in fantasy.
3: Yeah, rookie class is crazy. I mean, Giddy, I mean, you knew they were going to give him plenty of minutes, at least in in OKC, but he was going to be competing with SGA, uh, who took kind of a weird step back this season, I think adjusting to a different role, and then he got hurt, and then Giddy's, you know, continued to play great ever since. Barnes in the preseason, I think, showed us some interesting stuff, but he wasn't scoring the way that he uh like his confidence as a scorer from the preseason to the regular season was an insane jump um you know i think like uh as far as like murray goes for example like i don't think i think Murray's more of a surprise to like the general fantasy public or like the adp if you're just going off adp i think you and i and like james for example were pretty high on murray so like to me Dejounte murray eighth is like that's very good but it's not like uh insane in the same way that you know like bridges kind of came out of nowhere for example
2: no absolutely and i mean i, I kind of tried to get that point across in my brief write-up on Dejounte murray but i mean the adp was 51 i like you said i was definitely taking him higher than that i would not have been considering him with even like the 20th pick overall though you know i i think i think right. like late 20s is, is where i was probably comfortable right. i mean i i and again, we were obviously high on him. I know you discussed him. I can't remember if it was going into this year or it might've even been sometime last season. And I remember you wrote something to the effect of other than Russell Westbrook, like this is the guy that I could see averaging a triple double. And I remember reading that at the time and thinking like, okay, that, that is quite a leap, but here we are now. I mean, he has 11 triple doubles on the year. He's basically like one rebound short of averaging a triple double over his last 20 games. Like we're, we're not that far off from that. And He's still super young, still going to get better. Um, You know, not in a great basketball situation when it comes to competing for a title, but he's in a really good fantasy situation as the obvious go-to guy, uh, kind of leading a rebuild with an organization that we trust. So, I mean, I, I kind of tried to, to wrap up the write-up with, you know, he's on pace to finish with first round value this
3: year. Like, how high are you going to take DeJounte Murray next year? Um, You know, I mean, I'm going to look at, per game value mostly obviously still very high on per game value um it depends i mean i think he he has still has some limitations to his game like he's almost purely he's like a shooter like from the mid-range he has like a very bizarre stat profile because he's only getting to the free throw line like 2.9 times a game so you know uh i don't know man it depends like 'Cause if you if you assume that DeJounte Murray is going to remain this good as a defender and average like between one point five and two steals a game and obviously his passing's great, if he can take that step at, at this like at the same time as I'm gonna improve as a three point shooter, get up to like 36 percent, increase the volume, and make a point to get to the free throw line more, it's I mean, you know, first round might be tough, but it wouldn't be surprised if he was going like fifteenth or like Mm -hmm. next season
2: it is a super unique stat profile and you know the one thing that you do worry about a little bit is like he's not a he's not a top 10 player if he's not averaging two steals a game right now and since the start of february he's at 2.6 steals per game so that i mean that's a a massive massive part of the reason that he's having the season because like you said i mean he's not you know for, for for being such a good rebounder and such a good steals accumulator, he doesn't really get blocks at the rate that you'd think he would, even for a guard. And, you know, free throws aside, he's only hitting 1.3 three-pointers per game at like 32%. So he's, he's kind of regressed from three over the last two seasons. So, I mean, he's, he's just giving you so much in steals that he can kind of be a, not a zero from three-point, but, you know, close to that by by modern NBA standards. Um, so if that steal rate were to slip at all, like his value, I, I think would, would drop a decent amount. And I will say right now, like he's, he's only a 75% free throw shooter. So right. based on that, it's like, it's almost a good thing that he's that he's not taking that many. Uh, like if he, if he starts taking four or five free throws a game in general, that's good for him. But if he's only shooting 75%, you know, ultimately that's, that's kind of a zero for his fantasy value.
3: Right. Yeah. He's got a very, like he's, he's taking 21% of his shots as long mid rangers, which is 93rd percentile for point guards. Hmm um hitting them at 45 percent doesn't really get fouled obviously he's not getting fouled when he's shooting but not really getting fouled uh on on non-shooting uh fouls either like when he's on the court but i don't know man like, it's hard to like mm-hmm. it's hard to it's hard to be too critical because the spurs are tanking you know he's 25 he's going to be entering his prime um playing really well and it's not like the spurs are like have the worst record in the nba like he's it's they're 23 and 36 which is bad but it's above you know New Orleans who has like Brandon Ingram and Jonas Valančiūnas it's above the Kings who have Fox so uh i future is pretty bright for him i just think like if you have him you know i don't know what his outlook is going to be like in 5 years or like 4 years in theory if like the team gets really good around him will he still be putting up 20 points a game like is that his actual future i don't know but for the next 2 or 3 years uh i'm pretty excited for what he could do
2: this really only feels like his kind of like second real season, right? Where, I mean, if you want to, he, he lost one year due to a torn ACL. So he did, didn't play at all in 2018, 19. And then the year after that, you know, he's recovering. His his minutes are limited. He only averaged like 25 minutes a game. Um, Spurs are are in a position of, you know, that's when Lamarcus Aldridge was still there. DeMar DeRozan, um, you know, kind of a transitional period where, where he was more, he was more in like the Anthony, Anthony Simons zone at that point. Uh, like closer to that than he is like his current state as like a, an NBA all-star. Um, and, you know, last year he averaged 32 minutes a game. This year he's up to 34.4. And this is his first year as the go-to guy, right? I mean, last year, like he, he's, he's averaging career highs in every single category by far, other than the percentages. Um, so, you know, for a guy to be this good, I think in, in essentially like his first or first and a half, you know, year in this type of role, is super encouraging. Like you said, it's hard to see where this goes because he's 25 right now. He's averaging 29, 8, and 2 steals. Does he continue on this linear upward trajectory where two or three years from now, is he averaging like 27, 9, and 9 with 2 steals? Or do we kind of see this plateau and there's only, you know, for a player who's shooting 31% from three doesn't get fouled a lot. Like, is there a path to him realistically, you know, getting to even 25 points per game?
3: Yeah, it's tough to say. I mean, I think them shipping out Derek White's interesting because it just opens up even more playmaking opportunities for for Murray. If you go to Murray's game logs, like his past 13 games, it's been like a very distinct rise in his play. So past 13 games, he's 22 points a game on 49% shooting. That includes 4.3 free throw attempts per game at 84%. So he's like increasing a lot there. The main thing of note here. 11.1 assists to 2.3 turnovers it's just like an insane ratio Yeah, insane. Uh, about as, as about as pure of a point guard as you can imagine on that front and then the 2.2 steals so I don't know what would happen between like now and next year for that to change significantly unless the Spurs like sign somebody
2: yeah right I, I think that's almost the fear is that like the, t- the team getting better would would maybe ultimately hurt his fantasy value. But I, I also think like he's not. It's not like he's taking thirty shots a game here, and he's just you know just racking up these stats on a bad team. And you know they're the Spurs are playing at this crazy pace, and they're just not playing any defense. Like all of this seems pretty sustainable. Like you could add another good player around him, or two good players around him, and it's not like you would expect these numbers to completely taper off. Um, I, I mean, I think the rest of the way, assuming they don't go full OKC SGA mode from last year. I, I mean, I, I think the numbers are going to be crazy. Like over these final twenty-five games or so. Like he's played what three games since they traded Derek White, who I think was probably their second-best player at this point. Um, I mean, as long as they're willing to play him thirty-five to forty minutes a night, which they have until now at least, if they're willing to do that down the stretch, I, I mean, I, I think it's it's definitely possible that he could average a triple double or very close to a triple double over his final twenty to thirty games of the year.
3: Yeah. I mean, him and him and Josh Giddey are kind of in that same zone right now where it's just like they're on bad teams. They're primary ball handlers who are young. It's like they're just going to give them the ball and say, you know, make stuff happen. And they're both like the thing that's crazy. I mean, Murray, I mean, considering how few options there actually are on the Spurs, it's crazy that he's getting 11 assists a game over this stretch and he's only turning the ball over two times. Like, i I don't know how it's going like your entire defensive focus if you're facing the spurs is just shut down jante murray uh and he's doing this to you and it's it's kind of the same thing for giddy but his numbers aren't as aren't as gaudy at this point which is understandable because he's like 19 years old
2: right yeah i mean the spurs are 25th in made threes uh percentage wise they're right in the middle of the pack 35.4 percent i mean it yeah i like i don't know what you chalk it up to it's like you don't really feel great about like, all right, DeJounte Murray driving kicks to Lonnie Walker in the corner. You know, he doesn't, he doesn't have these just like automatic assist sources. Like a lot of guys who rack these up do. Um, but you know, I mean, he's making it work with Yaka Pertle, uh, Bates, Giop, uh, you know, they, they did just bring in Josh Richardson. We'll see if that changes anything. Uh, but that is a really good point. You know, he's, he's doing all this, um, you know, in a really tough situation, you know, a team that was a seller at the deadline that just gave away his, his backcourt teammate really for nothing. Um, you know, they did get Romeo Langford and they got Richardson, but that doesn't really help you all that much. Um, yeah, yeah, it does make you wonder, like if, if he had like a, you know, a Duncan Robinson or a clay Thompson type, you know, those, those guys are almost in some ways in the modern NBA, like almost as valuable as having a
3: really good rim running center. You know, it's kind of the shooting equivalent of that. Yeah. I mean, he does. I mean, I should, we should say Kelvin Johnson is shooting pretty well from three this year. And they, they do have Doug McDermott, but McDermott is, I don't know, he's playing twenty four minutes a game. Yeah, he's check up five threes, forty four percent, which is obviously like fantastic. But it's pretty good. It's not like he's not again. Th- it's just not a lot of guys like you mentioned. Lonnie Walker is taking five threes a game. It's twenty nine percent for him. Vassell is like average right now, thirty five percent. And so you know, Brent Forbes is now on the on the Nuggets. So yeah, man. I mean, it's it's hard to. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how. Like what. The argument would be for being like low on DeJounte Murray, other than being worried that he get into like the De'Aaron Fox zone where it's like teams will just not cover him outside of 15 feet. Um yeah. But I he's right now he's playing better than De'Aaron Fox ever has, I think.
2: I think so. I mean, in a lot of ways the stat profile is similar, you know, the struggles at the free throw line, the struggles from three. Um, but he's just like a supercharged version of deer and Fox where like, where where like Fox's hot stretches, you know, he'll, he'll be a better scorer. He'll average closer to 25, 28 points a game when he's really at his best, but he's giving you four or five rebounds, five or six assists. He's not giving you eight and a half rebounds and 11 assists, you know, and he's certainly not giving you two steals. Like I I think Murray in a lot of ways is what people kind of thought Fox would be on the defensive end. And and Fox has been fine. I I think he's, he's probably maybe even an underrated defender. At this point but i think people thought he would be like a 1.5 two steals per game guy because he's just like that good on the ball and and again i I, he's just not he just hasn't been that type of player um but but yeah it feels like murray is just kind of what everybody hoped myself included as someone who went big on deer and fox this year um pretty much what everybody hoped he would be but we'll wrap this thing up man uh we'll be back later this week Uh, i gotta go try to scrape a bunch of ice uh, off of my like house sidewalk driveway uh, I, don't, I don't i assume you guys got the same thing last night but it's it's pretty rough out there right now
3: yeah